Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, John is joined by Casey Cavell, who managed two exits from his DBAT Baseball Academy franchises, first selling 66% of the business at a value of $1.5 million, and then brokering a final sale of his remaining equity at a $10 million valuation. But before we get there, a quick word from today's sponsor of the show, Dynabook. If you're in the business of solving problems, you're going to need the right tools to help you get there. Dynabook's lineup of professional-grade laptops are expertly built for successful business everywhere. Need a budget-friendly option for everyday computing? The Pack Satellite Pro C50 comes fully loaded with everything you need to breeze through your daily tasks. The ultra-portable Tecra A40 and A50 are the perfect choice for today's hybrid professional, delivering industry-leading security and reliability so you can work comfortably from anywhere. And if you're looking for a top-tier device that keeps up with business, the Portage X40L offers an exceptional computing experience and military-grade durability in one of the world's lightest laptops. But workplace technology needs to do more than check off a list of features. You need a device that's ready to work every day of the week, which is why Dynabook offers the best coverage in the industry. Rest assured, they have you covered for the long haul with a three-year warranty and 24-7 anytime support. Get exactly what you need in a laptop and more at dynabook.computer. As you'll hear, John and Casey reference the Colby Psychometric Assessment Test. And so if you'd like to learn more about this test and how it can help you find great talent for your company, I've added a couple links in the show notes page, which can be found over at builttosell.com. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit more about what you can learn from today's episode with Casey. First is the benefits of franchising. How to evaluate whether to give a personal guarantee on a lease. How and why to hire a COO. Cavill's strategy to find and keep top talent. How to avoid burnout and redefining your identity post-exit. Plus, so much more. Here to share with you his full story is Casey Cavell. Enjoy. Casey Cavell, welcome, welcome to Build the Cell Radio. John, great to be here. It's, uh, it's great to have you because as I was saying before we hit record, I am not only a, a fan of your podcast, but also I'm a customer. So I, I've taken my kids to a DBAT facility and I think that's awesome. Tell me how you got into the business of DBAT. Explain what the business is and how you got into it. Yeah. So I've been kind of serial entrepreneur, got involved in buying businesses early in my, gosh, my early 20s. Um, I was actually a professional poker player dropped out of college. This was in like the boom of 2006, 2007, where it was on TV and it went mainstream and everybody thought they could do it. And I was a guy that just like read the books and studied and was mentally fit, was physically fit, knew the math. And, you know, there's a little bit of skill behind it. And if you do something that has a little bit of skill involved over a long period of time, you usually win. But I realized, John, that wasn't the lifestyle I wanted to live. So I took kind of my winnings and started investing in Buying uh, self storage facilities and apartment complexes early on, and I was before Nick Huber. We've had Nick Huber on the show, and Nick uh, talked a lot about self storage and how how he's kind of really transformed himself from you know one entrepreneur. Now he's now he's into the so we all we know a lot about self storage. But how did you go from self storage to DBAT? So I had an exit had you know, a few dollars in the bank. And I started saying, okay, what would I do if I knew I couldn't fail? And it was something around baseball because I was a baseball guy, played in college, but it was also around business. So I was trying to figure out a way to mix what I love with business and make money and make an impact and all of that. So I started Googling baseball franchises because I liked the idea of a franchise because I was like, hey, if somebody else has already figured this out, maybe I can do it similar, right? So I Mm. called them up. They were a franchise. They only had like seven or eight units at the time. They were only in Dallas, Texas. And I was their first franchise out of the state of Texas. And um, they connected me with somebody that was in Atlanta that had an all sports academy. This gentleman owned a, a hedge fund and he was a hedge fund manager. And how it goes is people with a lot of money that are passively investing in businesses, they don't really do really well. And he invested $3 million into this complex 40,000 square foot indoor complex, and it just didn't work. 
And he basically said, hey, here's the keys. Can you take this over? And I implemented this new model in there. So that's kind of how I come, came to find out about it. Okay, more detail. So I, I'm so the DBAT is is a company based in Texas. And for folks who don't know DBAT, it's a batting facility, a baseball facility. Yep. You get batting cages and all kinds of training stuff. So for kind of avid kids who are aspiring you know, players and so forth. So you come across this facility in Atlanta that was a multi-sport facility, not focused on baseball. What, to be clear, was it a DBAT franchise? It wasn't. It was called Top Dog Sports. And they did like all the sports. And I mean, they did soccer and softball and lacrosse and weightlifting and sports performance. And I realized it was a really good baseball market. And as a lot of our listeners know, the more niche you can get, the more success you'll have. And they didn't really own any niche. And I said, hey, all right, if I can take what DBAT's doing really well in Texas in a similar market, there seem, seems to be a similar need here. And if I could just focus on baseball and softball, I would do really well. So I bought him out, kind of took over the lease, saved him a bunch of money on guarantees and all of that kind of stuff. He gave me his email list, which had a sev several thousand people. And then I just said, hey, this is who we are now. This is what we do. And when you say this is who we are, you bought a DBAT franchise? Correct. Okay. So you bought a DBAT franchise and it sounds like you kind of took over Top Dog without it, uh, an exchange of money. You just said, look, I'll take over the leases, the basically the obligations, and but but I'm not kicking in any extra cash. Was that how you got into it? Or? I wrote him a $150,000 note that I had to make due over the next three years. So I was paying him a couple grand a month for kind of the goodwill and the, all that kind of stuff. Okay. So $150,000 note, meaning... you. Uh, effectively you were it was a debt that you yep. owed him and you you took money from the company to pay it back and you took over the leases which would have been if he if it was a headache for him it would have been a big deal to to get those taken over so so that's a lot of uh debt did you personally guarantee the leases yeah we did i think we probably had a 5 year guarantee on that lease i was in my mid 20s right so i was at a point where i could take a lot of risk i'm what 30 something now, right? 38 now. Yeah. So looking back at it, would I have done it again? I don't know. But I just said, hey, if other people are doing something similar, which they were in another market, could I do it better than them? And if I can say yes to that question and they're profitable, then I know I'm going to be profitable. And I just took a business-minded approach, not just a baseball-minded approach, but a business-minded approach to baseball. And there's not a lot of like strategically thinking people running these sports academies because they get in into because they're passionate about the product, but they don't know how to do all the other things outside of just delivering the service. Got it. And so what did a DBAT franchise run you? How much did that cost? Yeah, I think a franchise fee was thirty-five or forty thousand dollars at the time ish, right? And to get these things started today from the ground up, they're gosh, five hundred to a million dollars. Now, a lot of that is the build out of the building. Now, the good news with this is a lot of the build that was already done. I just went in and put new lights and put new turf and put new machines and put in a pro shop. So a lot of the build out was done. So I was almost halfway there. Okay. So you're, you're 35K into DBAT, $150,000 note. You take on this big obligation for the lease. What was the, how much was the lease? And I'm trying to, I'm, how long was the lease for it? Again, I'm get, I'm, I'm trying to get a sense of how, how, what the financial commitment was that you were taking on, uh, how long was the lease and how much per month? In other words, if you had defaulted on the lease, what was the, the obligation you would have inherited? I think it was about a three or $400,000 liability. I think our payment was right. ten dollars to $12,000 a month and it was a three or four year out on it. And who's ours? Is this you and your wife or who is the, who is the, gosh, your teammate in this? This was me at the time. So I went in okay. and- made the investment and got the thing started. I had a minority partner that started kind of early on, but I realized like six months in, he, he realized that I can't really help you run the day-to-day -day and that's what I needed. So I bought him out as well. But I think I was in the 150 note. We put another 200, $250,000 in improvements. I had another $50,000 investor. So I was probably in $400,000-ish in cash at the end of the day. And I had that uh, kind of that note I had to pay off as well. Wow, you've done pretty well for yourself for as a poker player and early in your in the self storage. I mean, you were still in your twenties and you had, you know, like big chunk of change to uh, to throw around into this business. 
Yeah, it, it, it worked. And, uh, you know, I just surrounded myself with the right types of people, I think, early on that have already been there and done that, whether it was in the self-storage industry or why I bought a franchise because the CEO of DBAT, I really liked him. I trusted him. He'd been there and done that. And I just kind of said, all right, what would you do if you were me? And I kind of put it through my own filter and just made it happen. In retrospect, do you think buying the franchise was worth it? Why not? I guess some people are listening saying, but Casey, you, I mean, you know, baseball, you could have just set it up without the DBAT franchise. Or, you know, was like in the long, like as you think back now, was it worth it having a, a DBAT franchise? I guess it just depends on your overall vision. My vision was just to have five locations around the Atlanta area and kind of be happy with that. Now, if I wanted to take over the world and own every academy and own every market, probably not. But I also liked the team at DBAT and what they taught me and their experience. And they got me there quicker. I love learning from other people's mistakes rather than learning from my own. And they made some because they've been doing this for eight to 10 years before I even got in. So it got me there quicker. Now, three, five years into it, did I know a lot of things? Yeah, I did. But I also had opportunities to do consulting and advisory for other franchises. So it just kind of worked its way out or itself out. And I just think if you can align with values, align people, whether they're an advisor or an investor or whatever, that have been there and done that, like it just makes life easier. And for me, it's, is money important? Yeah, I think it's a way to keep score, but it's also like who you're working with and is it fun? And it was more fun and more enjoyable to work alongside them. I want to dig deeper into this, into your vision, because I think it's really unique that your vision was five locations around Atlanta. What little I know of you now, I, I observe a really ambitious, very successful, like you read the books to do the the, the poker. Um, like not many people have that stick to the desire to read the books and you did, you won, you know, it strikes me that someone in their twenties, it would be more common for them to say, to have the bravado that would be like, I don't need DBAT. I'm going to take on the world. I'm going to have a hundred locations around the world. And yet you didn't. And that makes me curious as to why five locations? What was it about that size business, that sort of entity that that felt like a, a good goal? Do, do you know what I'm asking? Yeah. I think I had some self-limiting beliefs, honestly. Um, my dad was an entrepreneur and I saw some of his failures and some of the things that he tried to do and go big on that just didn't work. So I'm just like, I don't want to do that, right? Like I saw how some of those things impacted myself, my siblings, my mom. So I was like, is it worth it? Like, is it worth taking out all of this risk and doing this? So I think that was a little bit of it. And I was young and I was smart enough to know even back then, I, I just didn't know how to do it. And I'm like, if somebody else can help, great. And I'm a big believer that you just want to learn, especially in your 20s and your 30s, like, learn, 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 you'll earn later on down the road. So I think that was just as much it as anything is who can I learn from? Who can I do this with? And then the five was, we just kind of looked at what was already done in another market in Dallas and said, all right, they have similar populations or similar amount of customers or similar amount of income levels. All right, we could put one here, 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 and here. All right, great. Let's do it. And then I basically signed up to build five. So I kind of prepaid some of those other franchise fees. So I kind of pot committed myself and said, I'm in four or five. I have to do it because I knew like once I made an investment, I was going to do it because business is hard. It's a lot harder than obviously everybody listening. It's, it's difficult. But when you make that investment, whether it's emotionally or financially, like you're in. And were you thinking at the time when you bought those five franchises, those, that, those locations, were you thinking you know, I'll flip these down the road, similar to the way you did the self-storage business. Or were you thinking, I'm a baseball guy. I, I want this forever. I'm a lifestyle entrepreneur and I, I want to own. I, I, do, do you know what I'm asking? I didn't really know, which might've been the norm for a lot of entrepreneurs. It's I saw an opportunity and I wanted to take advantage of it. I think a lot of people get too far out in the future of what's it going to be when they're like, all right, well, what do, you, what do I want this thing to do a year from now or three years from now? So I knew if I could just do one really well, all right, I could probably do another and do another. And then who knows kind of what happened from there.
So you get into the first one, which was Top Dog, and you rebranded and 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 bought new, upgraded the facility and so forth. Um, how did that go? How was the first facility? What was what was the explain the economics of it? You know, the, the business was basically shut down. There was no customers for six months, and we opened up and we generated, I think, one point five million or so in revenue in our first twelve months. So it was really good. Um, but I worked really hard, and the mistake that I made, John, is. I kind of did a little bit better than the previous business as far as niche. Okay, we're just doing baseball and softball, but I didn't even niche farther down, meaning, oh, we're a baseball and softball academy. Well, what does that mean? Slow pitch softball, fast pitch softball. Does that mean adult league softball, church league softball, baseball? Okay, is that professional players? Is that college players or high school or little league? So I was chasing a lot of different opportunities in the first year, which we made money. We were profitable. But when I figured out who are the customers that we really love serving, who are the customers that nobody else is going at, or at least I know by serving that niche, like we can be the best in the world at it. And I realized, John, it wasn't the travel ball player or the professional player, which we had the Jason Haywards of the world, right? The Dexter Fowlers of the world, the Craig. We had all the pros that come in during the day, but they weren't paying us. We just said, hey, come in for free, hang out right? Let, let us use your name that, hey, this is the place that the pros train. You know, our niche ended up being like the five to 10 year old kid because one, we loved working with five to 10 year olds. They were fun. Like most five to 10 year olds, as long as they're not your own, right? They're fun to hang out with and fun to be with, right? Um, and nobody else was serving that niche. And, you know, ultimately they made us the most money because we had multiple revenue streams in baseball. They could come to our camps or birthday parties or pitching machines or lessons. Well, a 13-year-old kid's not having his 13-year-old birthday party at DBAT, right? Or a 17-year-old kid's not coming to a baseball camp. So we had to niche down. And when we did that into our second year, the business just, I mean, it just, it just took off. And it was a lot more fun and it was a little bit easier to manage. A lot of people saying, yeah, but you gave up a lot of revenue, you know, not taking the travel ball team stuff. I don't know. I'm not sure I could do that. What just walk through the economics of making that change of really focusing on the five to 10. So you had a million five in revenue profitable in year one. Where did it go from there? We, we kind of plateaued in that one, five, one, seven range, but it was more profitable revenue. And it was give me a sense of the percentage of like profitability. Oh, like gosh, how much we were, was it before? We were 35 to 40% profitability on that business. Um, but wow. was it, was, it before? It was probably half of that. Wow. Okay. So it had a huge impact, not necessarily on the top line, but more on the bottom. Yeah. Line. I mean, we realized a, a camp with 10 kids in it for one instructor, the profit margins were a lot better than one one-on-one lesson with the high school kid. So let's just focus all of our energy on that. And we only had so much space, right? We were, we're not like a service-based business where you can just keep growing and scaling. I and mean, we, we had some confinements. And that's why we couldn't grow. That's why we had to add more locations. But yeah, giving up revenue or giving up per- potential customers to find more of the better ones, it's always a good decision. It's always hard for a business to figure that out or realize that. But once they do, they're in better shape. Got it. So you're niche down to the five to 10 year old market camps, birthday parties, and so forth. I get it. Totally. What triggered you to want to start a second location? So I was honestly burnt out of the first one. So first year, one, two, one, five-ish in revenue, right? I was doing it all myself. Second year, I was still doing it all myself because I realized, hey, if I go in and bring in a six-figure type of salary in here, there goes a little bit of my profit. So it was a very hard business. Yeah, it was a very hard business to get out of the day-to-day. And for me, a business should make money without the owner being there. And it was making money without me being there, but it wouldn't make nearly as much. And for me, like I want to be great at everything I did. And it wasn't something that I could just leave and go do something else and everything's going to work because the caliber of people I could hire or that even was a self-limiting belief. Like I didn't realize that if you hire better people, they could actually make you more, right? And that's where I probably got it wrong is I underpaid people. I didn't get people bought into the bottom line. Like I just didn't know how to do those things. So I had this successful business, but I was ready just to say, all right, let's sell it. Let's move on. Let's take some time off and do something else. Although it was baseball and it's what I loved. If you do anything 
too much of what you love, it eventually becomes sure. kind of tough. And I was having to do everything. And that's where I think a lot of business owners, whether they want to sell their business, like figure out a way to sell your business, but it can't be relying on you. And that's going to increase your valuation and all of that kind of stuff. So that's, so, that's how it happened. Okay. So, you're, so you got the one location, you made the big change to focus. You're now at 35% profit margins. What happens next? Is that when you, you did sell part of the business? To- yeah. I went to some local. Make, walk it through that. Yeah, I went to some local business brokers that I knew and started calling and texting everybody. and said, "Hey, look, do you know anybody that wants to make an investment and buy this business?" Because I almost had to portray that. Okay, I'm I'm good. The business is good. But if you would have removed me from that business, like it would have went down just because we had one location and I was the engine behind it. So I was trying to sell a business that was really relying on me and people weren't really buying it. They were like, Casey, if you're removed in this business, what am I really buying here? Because people don't want to buy a job, right? They want to buy an entity and something that makes money without them, an engine. So I quickly realized, but, all right, how did they, how did, Casey, how did they, how did they evaluate that when they were looking at your business? How did they get a sense that it was dependent on you? Because on the outside, it doesn't sound like it would be that dependent on you. It's a baseball facility. You run birthday parties. I mean, you don't need to have a really senior person to run five to ten year old birthday parties and 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 that kind of stuff. So, what? How did they look at this business and say, Ah, Casey's too. It's too dependent on Casey. I was a general manager. I was the COO, head of operations, head of birthday parties. Like I was literally doing the majority of that. And my highest paid person on staff was like 13 or 14 bucks an hour. Right. So they realized like if he's gone, well, who's doing it? And if I buy, then who's replacing you? And I just didn't have that person. Okay. And help me square one other thing. So you're thinking of selling this deep this, this, this one location, but haven't you committed to building out four other locations? Were you still intending to, to build out those four other locations or were you totally burned out? Like, this, help me understand that. Yeah. At this point I was done. I was like, okay, so I could you're use, gonna walk away from that. Yeah. I was going to use that and say, Hey, if you want, you can use these other licenses to, <sighs> you know, I was going to kind of sell those licenses with it to let them know, Hey, if you yeah. want to be the one to build five more of these things, great. But I just couldn't see myself starting another one because I just, at the time, wasn't smart enough to realize, all right, I have to hire really great people that are better than me, that are smarter than me, that are more savvy than me, that have been there and done that. I have to pay them really well. And I have to build a business that didn't rely on me, like systems and processes and all of that, because it just didn't exist. It was a newer franchise and every location is different. And I just, I just didn't realize that I needed to invest in good people and good processes. And um, yeah, I was ready to kind of give it up. Okay, so this is really interesting. So the brokers are looking at this saying, yeah, but it's too dependent on you, Casey. So where does it, where does it go from there? One of the business brokers uh, reached out to me and said, hey, I know a guy that might be really interested. He was in the process of getting a company acquired. He was a, a stakeholder in a very successful business. And he was you know, 20 years my senior and very much wiser than I ever was. And we met, we had lunch and he goes, you know, he started asking me a bunch of questions and saw my kind of skill set, my unique superpower per se, right? Of the things I was good at. And he's like, just so you know, I'm not good at any of those things, but I am good at these things. And all of those things that he was good at are things I did not want to do. I did not want to touch. Those were the things that were burning me out. And he taught me and showed me that, hey, there is a way to get you out of the day to day. And he started bringing in some people and some other people that were coaching me and mentoring me and all that. So, that's where I was like, well, if there is a way to do five, if there is a way to get me out of the day to day, and if this gentleman who I got to develop a really good relationship with before he became a business partner can help me, why not do it? I take a few chips off the table if it doesn't work out. And then if it does work out, fantastic. What, what did he offer you for the business? Yeah. So he offered me uh, you know, 66% ownership in the company, $1.5 million valuation. Um, And then he, after that offer, he goes, Hey, I have another partner that I want to bring in to, to take 33 or half of his 66%. And the gentleman that he brought in was another super solid guy, uh, major league baseball agent. So he was connected, um, built businesses like he, you know, an Atlanta guy. So he, 
he just brought a different level of expertise and wise counsel to the table. And I was like, hey, okay, better to have two partners than one. Absolutely. So let me let me just understand the valuation. So so he said uh, we'll put a value on it of one point five million. Uh, got it. So at the time, it, it, you're doing thirty five percent on a million seven. So I'm 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 doing the back of the uh, the math on that would have been like kind of like three times profit ish. That was pretty close. Three and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he puts three and a half, he put a value on it of three and a half times profit. Um, it, it sounds actually more like SDE brokers refer to seller's discretionary earnings, but because yep. it, it, it was also including your, 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 your salary was also part of the profit of the business. Got it. Okay. So three and a half times for, and so place a million five, but he didn't buy it outright a hundred percent. He he said, I'll buy 66%. Yep. Right. So Casey, here's a check for roughly a million bucks. Go away. Put that in the bank, but we want you to stay. Yes. It sounds like and remain a shareholder. You you hold on to 33%. Um, I'll hold on to 33% and I'll bring in this other guy, former agent or agent who will also take a third. Yep. Am I getting the, the math roughly right? Correct. So you were still in the business. Um the third of your equity you, you rolled in. What about your salary? Did you did you remain an employee of the business, or did you kind of this was the back away from? I didn't even understand at the time, like an employee versus owner versus salary. Like I didn't even understand all of that stuff. So I don't think I got anything for maybe six months, and eventually I took like I think it was like three thousand dollars a month salary to do this okay. job, which, as you know is probably shy of what I would normally have gotten back then in the normal marketplace. But I, I thought, hey, the only way I should make money is that the business is profitable. That's what I thought. But I didn't realize, realize that I'm working 40, 50 hours a week in this thing too. So yeah. What about your other two partners? Were they working 40, 50 hours a week in it? Or was it more part-time? No. The one gentleman was just there quarterly and monthly. And he was just more of a connector, right? So he didn't get like a ongoing salary. And uh, Chad, my other partner, he... He didn't take anything. I think eventually, maybe a year into it, when we got to like two or three locations, he took like something similar to what I did on a, out on a monthly basis. Got it. Got it. That makes total sense. So you're you you've got two new partners and you've pocketed some cash, which is great. What happens next? So we tried to fix some of the problems that we we're currently experiencing in our one location, which was high turnover, which was Casey was the chief of everything. And we high turnover of sorry, customers or staff? Staff. Okay. Got it. Because we weren't paying people enough. We had no benefits or anything like that. And uh Chad, who came in, said, Hey, let's take care of our people. Let's pay people more. Let's take care of them. Let's tie them into the success. And he taught me a lot of things. So I think for the next six months or so, we just kind of steadied the ship a little bit, got me a little bit more emotionally healthy because I was experiencing burnout. Um, and then new opportunities came up and we knew that, you know, right up the road in Marietta, which was 20 minutes away, would have been a great second location, kind of baseball capital and kind of Georgia. Mecca. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, there was another gentleman up there that was a former professional baseball player, played in the with the Astros in the World Series, and he wanted to start a D-Bat. So we kind of like, mingled him in with the ownership group as well. And he realized, hey, I, I want to own it, but I don't want to run it. And he saw us as the ones that could run it. So he kind of got into the ownership group and took a small percentage. So I got diluted a little bit more. Um, but ultimately, we opened that location up and he didn't have to be the one hiring the people and managing the people and doing all that kind of stuff. He just got to own it. And then we had a grand opening and it was another business that went out of business. Actually, we bought, it was the exact same kind of situation. Another failed academy. We took over a building. So some of the stuff was done. That build out was a little bit more expensive, but we, we did the exact same thing and put in this, put in the model. And so now you've got four owners in this ownership group in two locations. How did the debt work? So the second location, you had to take over a lease. So there's a lease obligation there. You've got to make some leasehold improvements and, and fix up the facility. That costs money. Who guaranteed the debt? Or was the business at this point big enough to, to take on the debt? Like, yeah. Just help me understand We that. pulled out a couple lines of credit. And the other... And who guaranteed that? Uh, it would have been all four of the partners. Yeah. 
Ah, okay. Yep. So personally, all four of the partners. Yep. Even though Chad sounds like he was at a much later stage in life. Yes. But we all kind of said, hey, if we're going to take a loan out, we all guaranteed it. And then the fourth partner ended up investing cash, which helped. Um, and the line of credit mm -hmm. wasn't a lot because we kind of knew how to get these things open for as cheaply as possible. But this next location, yeah, it was it was probably, a, you know, it was a significant build, but we all kind of put in our own line of credit and our kind of personal financial statement on the line and accepted a few more investment dollars. What was the most challenging part of of having an ownership group? Here's here's what my experience would be on this in, in that when you've got people with at very different stages in life, some people maybe wanting liking the idea of a business but not necessarily want to running in a business, uh other people who you know, maybe just put, putting their name to it and connections, but not necessarily willing to like pick up the birthday cake and drop it off at the party. Like some of the kind of blocking and tackling associated with that. Like, how did you stick handle some of those conversations? I mean, am I reading between the lines here and saying that, 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 that there must have been those tensions between the ownership group? No. Yeah, it was messy. It was it was hard. The good thing was the ownership group was really wise and really mature. And they were super solid guys that didn't let money get in the way. Like these guys were salt of the earth kind of people, right? So that's where it's like, you got to make sure you're going into business, especially if you're like in a partnership, like with people that are values aligned, that at the end of the day, that all went to zero, you're okay, they're okay. So that was really important. And they were great there. I mean, I wish I knew then what I knew now around how do you structure an organization? How do you understand, okay, this is the position I'm playing and this is my role and this is my position and this is how you're going to get paid and this is what success looks like. And we didn't have that. I did my best, but it was really tough because everybody had a different thought or opinion or whatever. Um, and not so much my first two original partners, but we had you know other people that ended up joining the group a little bit later on when we went from two to five. And we can talk about that. But then there's more ideas, right? And there's more voices. And that's when it got really hard. And we got maybe a little bit farther away from our niche. But looking at it, you know, and, and when I go into companies now, it's like, all right, where are we going? Okay, what is our niche? What are we focused on as a company? And then who's doing what? And then how are we going to work and communicate? And we set that up really poorly. Could have improved on that. But at the end of the day, it worked because we were just people that cared about each other and um, didn't let some of that stuff get in the way. But it probably could have been done a lot better. What triggered you to want to get out completely? And maybe just walk through how big you were and, and what, what was the... What was the genesis? Yeah, we went from the the one location to the two and then two to three to four and to five. And you know, as we grew, we brought in a few more partners here, there, because building these things out took capital. It's not like you can just grow by hiring people. You had to hire people and you had to like buy leases or invest in real estate and improvements and guarantee leases. And at that point, I was like, hey, I'm good. I'm I can retire. I'm fine. Like financially, I was not wanting to take on more financial risk. And as I saw it getting bigger, there was more and more financial risk being taken on. Um, and you know, we got to a point where we had five locations. It was a you know ten million dollar valuation at the time, and it's the good news. It's so much better today than it was even back then because I think they started realizing, all right, well, what are the roles? What are the responsibilities? Who's doing what? And they ended up aligning a lot at the end. And then when I ended up exiting. I basically hired a COO to oversee it all. And we said, he's in charge. So it wasn't, all right, there's multiple people with multiple voices. There was multiple voices, but there was one person that was literally in charge of running the day-to-day. -day, and he had an experience that was above and beyond what I had. And that's what I realized back in the day. It's just, if I would have brought other people in that kind of had operational experience, because I think my first couple partners, they were more visionary, which um, there's a book out there called Rocket Fuel. Have you heard of that book, John? Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, Gina Wickman. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and it talks about every business needs a visionary and an integrator. The visionary is the person that's like ideas and future focused, and everything seems great, and they're really optimistic. And the integrator is more like, 
okay, hang on, this idea is great, but I don't know if we should do it this quarter, maybe next quarter. Or they're the ones that are writing, uh, writing down that vision, but making sure the vision happens by running the day-to-day and leading weekly meetings and looking all the KPIs and all of that. And I think we had a lot of yeah. visionaries and I was probably the only integrator, but I was even more visionary. So it was really hard until we brought in somebody that was more like that integrator. Um, and I ended up reading that book, Rocket Fuel, probably my last year in the business. And I wish I would have read that book at the beginning of our partnership. But you know what? At the end of the day, I learned a lot and it was still a super huge success for all parties. Uh, probably a little bit messier than it needed to be. I wish I would have been probably a little bit more emotionally healthy at the time uh, because I was so burnt out. But I was burnt out because I didn't hire and surround myself with good operators. I surrounded myself with good visionaries, but I think we were one or two other like operators away from really taking it to the next level. Got it. That makes total sense. I want to dig into uh, a couple of things. So you get to five locations. The the ownership group had diluted at that point. How, uh, where are you at in, in percentage terms at this at this stage of the game? You were at a thirty three percent. Yeah. By the time you get to the five, are you down to sort of single digits? Do you, do you remember where you are? No, I was just shy of twenty percent. Got it. So you still got a. A, a good chunk of the of the business and 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 was there i hear you on the general theme which was the ownership group as you grow you're continuing to take on more and more obligations yeah. in the form of leases and debt and you're continuing to guarantee those mm-hmm. you'd reached a point where you didn't want to continue to do that and you wanted to de-risk a little bit, which I totally empathize with. Was there a straw that broke the camel's back that you're like, this is this is it. This is like this this is a bridge too far. Was there like a renewal of a debt facility that can you remember what the actual thing was that made you think, you know what, I'm out. Yeah, I think it was a little bit of the financial risk involved because it takes a lot of capital to build a capital intensive business. And I was having to guarantee debt that at the time, I wasn't the person that I knew I could make good on it, meaning I didn't have the control. Like I couldn't just be the one to say, all right, I'm going to run this thing and guys just get out of my way. And now I don't, I would have been successful doing it, but I would have burnt myself out again. But I just, I didn't control my own destiny anymore because there were so many different voices that it was hard for me. And I already went on that journey once, right? Building it. So I just wasn't ready to do it again. And for me, guaranteeing debt when I know like I'm not the actual person that's going to make it happen. Right. That was tough for me. Yeah. That's tough. And, and did you explore with a bank, the possibility of, of allowing the business to guarantee the debt at this point? Like, was it large enough? Did you, did you have those conversations with banks to say, look, we got to remove us as personal guarantors here. Yeah. And I think we eventually got there and probably now that's probably where it is. I just, you know, I probably lacked a lot of the visionary like vision that my partner had because he'd already been down this road. He's already seen how these things can play out if you just follow the course. I just had it. And that's where I got a little bit, hey, I've done great. I got my capital here. I've made a lot of great relationships. Can I maintain great relationships with this team, help them potentially, and then exit in a graceful way? And that's what ended up happening. You mentioned the $10 million valuation. Walk me through how you valued the business, like the methodology you used. Gosh, it was it was a lot of like napkin type math, right? It was my partner and I, we just got together and we said, hey, look, this is where we're at. This is what's possible. This is what's kind of happening. Because not every location at the time, I think our last one opened just recently opened. Now we opened with a bang, but it takes a little bit of time for these things to get kicking. Sure. So it was kind of yeah. like, back in the napkin math, what makes you happy? What makes me happy? How can we maintain a friendship? And then we just worked, we just worked it out together. And I got a check and we maintained a friendship and we still do stuff together. I own a piece of the real estate in one of the locations, right? Cause that was kind of nice. And I wanted the business to succeed. And I realized at that time I was holding it back and I had my person that I knew could kind of do better than I could. And I put him in there and it just worked. And usually in these deals, there's sort of a, uh, a payment over time. So how did you structure the, the if I'm doing the math right, $10 million valuation, yeah. 20%, a couple million bucks, a big check for a company to write. Did, did, it, did you 
Did you get a check over, like, you know, did you get paid over time or how did, how did they structure the payments? Yeah, it was pretty much, it was a little bit upfront and then some over time. And, uh, I didn't want to put a, a burden or a debt on, you know, the team, but, uh, yeah, that's how it was structured. And, and, and in that kind of structure, you're a little bit exposed to the business continuing to succeed when you're gone. How did you get comfortable with that risk? Because again, you, you the reason you wanted out was you you were you know all this risk you didn't necessarily control the outcome to but you were you were essentially signing up for that in agreeing to get paid over time so how did you get comfortable with that idea that that this these payments were going to get made yeah does that make sense yeah i i took enough up front where i knew i would be good if for some reason something happened so i was kind of okay. good with that um and then i knew i had somebody in there that could run it now that was that was going to be better than I was. Um, and I interviewed that person and, you know, over time and I saw him in action. And I think that's where, that's where, you know, looking back at it, if I could have brought that person in earlier, created more clear roles, responsibilities of what he does and what I do, right. I might still be in the business today. That's not how it worked out because I didn't know. Right. But we just didn't have that clear alignment. And I was still, probably doing a lot of things in the business that I didn't love to do. And I was just like, all right, if I can remove myself from that, go take my experience and learn from others and help other people do it even better. Cause what we did was amazing. Um, but I'm always like learning and trying to figure out next time, how do we even do it better? A lot of people listening to this will have considered maybe even had a false start around the idea of hiring a chief operating officer, an integrator to use your, uh, lexicon, uh, a general manager. What what experiences can you share, or even advice for somebody who's just about to hire a COO, COO or integrator? Like, what makes a great integrator? What are some of the, the mistakes people make when hiring a general manager? What, what advice would you give? You got to align on vision and values first. So you just got to get really clear in your mind of what is the vision for the business. Three years from today, what does it look like? A year from today, what does it look like? Are you trying to exit? Are you trying to build something that doesn't rely on you having to be there? So like get really clear on what the vision is. And I find a lot of owners don't have that. Like it might be clear in their head, but it's not written on paper. And if it's not written on paper, right, it's like tough. And visionaries are very optimistic. And I think even taking that vision and asking somebody else, well, what do you think of this? Is this possible? Right, I think is good. So clear on vision clear on value alignment. You got to have vision and value alignment. But if they're good on the vision and they're good on the value side, but they don't have the skill set, it just doesn't, doesn't matter. So you know, a good integrator or COO is great at managing people and they're great at making sure stuff gets done, like the right stuff gets done. So you need somebody that loves waking up every day and kind of doing the same thing 10,000 times over and over again, where visionaries like to do one thing or 10,000 different things one time. So you need somebody that's very process driven. They like going and waking up at the same time and going to the office and doing the same thing and reviewing employees and hiring people and managing people. And But yeah, I mean, what type of person and somebody they got to love being around every day or at least being in a relationship with because you're going to talk to this person a lot. Don't just hire somebody because they got the skill set. Hire them because you have some kind of connection where you you see yourself enjoying working with them. And then hire somebody that you know has a proven track record of actually managing before. Because if you hire somebody that that hasn't done it, you're kind of gambling to see, can they turn into that person? So have somebody that I believe, depending on the business. Now, if it's a million-dollar business, maybe you can hire somebody you know, that has potential, but they got to get it pretty quickly. They like If you got to teach them, a lot, like that's tough. People either get it or don't. Um, and just, uh, you know, kind of invest and align with them and figure out what they want. Because if you can help them get what they want, they'll help you get what you want. So hire somebody. You, sorry, Casey, I didn't mean to cut you off. I wondered, do you use any psychometric testing or any assessments that you would use to evaluate a COO? Oh my gosh, I got them all. I use the Colby assessment is one of them. Um, there's an assessment I use that's literally a visionary integrator assessment that's more kind of the way that I look at it, where it asks certain questions from the visionary and integrator of their strengths and weaknesses. And I try to actually compare each of them, right? Because I mean, it's it's kind of like you're finding your business spouse. And as 
a lot of people know like marriage is tough, right? Most marriages fail. Most business partnerships fail. Most COO, CEO, visionary, they just don't work because they don't do the work up front to figure out, is this the right person and align on what does success look like and what's my role versus your role going to be in the business? So Colby is one that I'm, I'm, I'm quite familiar with. So it's based on four personality attributes, yep. fact finder, yep. the desire to seek out information before making decision, uh, follow through patterns, desire to create systems, quick start, new ideas and, and vision stuff, and then uh, implementer, right? I think it's yep. called implementer. It. Is that the fourth one? Implementer, yeah. which is good with your hands, physically able to build models and stuff like that. So of those four, what, and, and, and Colby, for folks who are interested, you score everybody. Everybody has a little bit of all four attributes in them, but you have sort of tendencies towards one or the other. So you score each other. Score, you get a score from, I think it's one to 10 yep. on each attribute, right? So what would you be looking for in a COO, a chief operating officer, 2IC integrator on those four metrics, yeah. fact finder falls. Yeah. So that fact finder is your need for information. So I want a COO to need a lot of information before they can take action. And this assessment is all about how you take action and get something going. So a fact finder is they need a lot of information. I don't love the seven plus. Yeah. Seven. I would say six plus. If they're a nine or a 10, that almost scares me because it's like, man, they are going to analysis paralysis. So I like yeah. in that six plus, if it's a nine or 10, I like it, but I also have some questions. And then looking at follow through, that's systems. Their need for systems and structure and organization, it's got to be a six plus. Um, because I want somebody that if they're working with a visionary and says, hey, let's go do this. They're like, hang on, let me slow down and ask some questions to clarify, should we do it? What's the best way to do it? And then let's put a system in place to make sure if we do this, we do it the right way in the right order. And those two things are the most important um, for any integrator. Quick start? Quick start, quick start. A lot of quick starts, like mine's a two. Now I'm kind of visionary, so I'm kind of weird. I'm willing to go and take risk, but I have to have all the information. So you have to have a CEO or integrator that's willing to go, that's not just stuck and scared. But I like a quick start to be a two plus. If they're like a one or even a two, you just got to make sure they're like, they're willing to work in an entrepreneurial business. You know, most of your listeners, like that's entrepreneurial type companies, they're not big corporate entities mm -hmm. where you can hide. Like the integrator CEO has to be able to get stuff done. They can't just be stuck in research and fact find all day. They got to be willing to go. So, quick start, it's typically like, you know, a two plus. If they're like a six, seven, eight, or nine, I'd be wondering, are they even an integrator? Because I don't love. COO integrators to have like a nine or an eight, because that's them wanting to take risk. And if the visionary of the company or you listen to this as an entrepreneur, you're probably high in risk taking. Well, if you partner up sure. with another risk taker, good luck. You guys are going to take some risk. But if you don't have the systems or the processes, it's going to be tough. And an implementer, do you care? I don't really look at that one all that much. It's more for like engineers and stuff like that. It's people like working with their hands. I, yeah. I, I, I don't use that one as much. Yeah. And, and for folks who want to dig deeper into this, one of the other things in case you did a great job of, of describing it, but if you're working with someone where there's a huge gap between the numbers, like for example, if you're a nine quick start and you hire a one quick start, uh, although you may think, oh, that's perfect because I'm really big on ideas and, and the one is going to be super conservative. The, the problem is you may look at each other like you have two heads, like you're, it's like you'd speak a different language. So it's, it's good to have variance but not too much variance. So, you know, like a, a seven and a four would work well together. Like you could appreciate each other's strengths, but still sort of row in the same direction. Whereas like a nine and a one, that's going to be like oil and water. Tough, tough to make that work. Thank you for the deep dive on Colby for folks. I'll put Colby stuff in the show notes too, if anyone wants to dig deeper into that. Um, this is great, Casey. Are you up for a quick lightning round before I let you go? Let's do it. Okay, so you've had a lot of dealings with investors, potential investors, potential acquirers over over your time with DBAT. And so I'm I'm asking this from the standpoint of uh, you can look at it from a potential acquirers of the entire business or investors in the business. But what's the slimiest trick 
an investor or acquirer has tried to play on you? The slimiest trick. I try to take advantage of your naivete, trying to kind of get one over on you. I don't know. I'm, I'm really good at the fact finder. My fact finder is high. So I ask a lot of questions and I can, I can kind of tell by now who's real and who's not. But I think it's the lure of money, the lure of more. Like they're trying to get you to realize, wow, you do, it's so easy. I think like nothing's easy. Nothing is as good as it seems. And there's always like things below the surface of, what a lot of people are telling you. Got it. So you've had sort of two exits. Uh, the first being the, when the business was just the one location, you sold 66%. So you can, you can use that as an example. Or the second exit where you were a minority shoulder in a much larger business. Um, but what's the biggest mistake you made personally in the process of selling your company. Again, choose either of the two sales, if you will. But what's the biggest do-over you'd like to have? I wasn't emotionally healthy during any of that period of me building that business. I wish I probably would have brought somebody on to be some sort of... I mean, I went to uh, you know a Christian counselor for two or three years while building this business. And at the end of that three-year period, I was like free and my mind was clear. And I just had a lot of baggage from previous life experiences that I didn't get over of. So I think it's just making sure you're healthy, right? You're healthy in your relationships at home. You're healthy in your relationship with yourself because I wasn't a healthy person and unhealthy people, whether it's spiritual, mental, physical, emotional, if you're unhealthy, you're going to make unwise decisions. And I think I was at a high level of stress. So Anybody that could take a step back and say, all right, how do I de-stress? How do I get my mind thinking clearly? Because I think a lot of people, entrepreneurs that are in the fight, building, thinking about selling a business, it's a very stressful thing. And when you're making decisions under stress, it can be dangerous. Yeah, no, for sure. And for you, I'd love to know in your own personal experience. And again, I want to really isolate that the process of selling rather than the process of building DBAT, which I know took years. I'm thinking of just that, that window of time where you were negotiating the sale, whether it was the first or second, what was the lowest emotional ebb you reached? Like what triggered the lowest emotional ebb you reached during the, during the process of selling? I think it's my identity because now what, right? I'm selling this business. Now, what am I going to do now? Who am I? And I remember we had a gentleman, um, this was in the process of me exiting after I hired my replacement. And one of the gentlemen that I hired, um, he actually passed away in, a, in, in an accident. And I remember all of the guys that I hired were getting together at the facility. And I already hired my replacement. I'm like, should I go? Should I not go? Am I a part of this team? And I not a part of this team? Like I cared about these people, but I didn't want to get in the way of the new leader that I just put in place to help these people. So I think for me, it's my identity was tied a lot probably to the business. Um, and that was another one of those things that I worked through that, hey, I am not my business, right? That doesn't define me. So I think that was probably it. And I think a lot of people that exit a company, they're they're stuck. And the day they sell might be great, but it's like, Three weeks later, after they done their golf and done their trips, like, what do I do now? So I think that was probably it. Yeah, yeah, well said. And what about the highest point? Again, if we isolate the the actual time where you were selling the business, either the first or second yeah. time, what was the emotional sort of height you reached? I just remember I didn't have to do any of the things that I didn't like to do anymore. And there was a lot of things, you know, I always tell people you want to spend 70% of your time doing things that you love and you're great at and 30% of the things that you're good at, but you don't like doing. And I was probably inverse of that because I was not willing to bring on, you know, the right people or at least the right counsel to help me. Um, so I think it was like, Hey, I don't have to answer that phone anymore. Right. I don't have to do that thing anymore. And was there one, can you, like, it sounds like you're, you're generalizing, but I'd be curious that was there one moment in time, like one angry customer or one like that you remember, I don't actually have to deal with this. Like, was there one moment that it, it, it that, that you had that realization? You know, I'm a great leader of people, but not a great manager of people. And when you're managing young 20 something year old, former professional baseball players that are now instructors. 
And they take a lot of coaching and a lot of help and a lot of handholding. And that wasn't my personality. I was like, I'm glad I don't have to manage them anymore. I, I miss leading them and connecting with resources, but teaching guys to show up on time for their baseball lessons, right? Teaching them, hey, after your lesson, you should probably write a thank you note and put it in the mail and thank your client and make sure you call them if they haven't rebooked in a week. So managing um, people and personalities, um, at least, you know, us baseball guys and professional athletes, they were, they were hard. That's really funny. <laughs> uh, what about any resources you could point our listeners to in particular around the process of valuing and selling a company? Again, I, I made a note of rocket launch, so yep. we'll, we'll put that in the show notes for sure. Are there any other speakers, forum mates, courses that you went on, anything you could sort of share with our listeners that was helpful for you? You know, I sought out other people that already had exits and I had a, a list of, you know, two or three guys that I relied on. So I would just say those people are probably probably already in your network. There wasn't like a, a guru or a thing like I wanted a real person that had already been through it. Um, you know, and I wish I probably would have joined some kind of peer group probably earlier because I probably would have made some different decisions. Um but I think that's probably it. There's all kinds of different peer groups out there that are other CEOs and entrepreneurs that are going through it. But I just had a couple of close friends that um, kind of saw things a different way. And I think that's what's important is surrounding yourself with other people that might give you advice you don't want to hear or ask you questions that you don't know of asking you know, of yourself. What about a trophy? Did you reward yourself with any sort of, uh, any sort of physical trophy that... Uh... That commemorates the win. I remember like going and test driving like a Porsche, Porsche, like after I exited. And this was like the first time. And I was like, I don't need a car. Like, I don't, it's not going to make my life better. And I, I just stuck with my Honda CRV. Now I don't even own a car. Um, I kind of borrow my wife's when I need it. Um, and we're about to buy, upgrade to a minivan. So I guess I'll be borrowing her minivan sometime soon. But no, I mean, I, I just love relationships and people. So, I think just doing things with friends like, hey, let's go to this sporting event or let's, we went to the World Series. I mean, we've kind of yeah, done fun. all the fun sports events that are out there to do. And, I, you know, a lot of times I'll just invite friends for free and you don't even have to pay for it kind of thing. I, I kind of like doing that. Yeah. Which World Series game did you see? We went in 2016. We went to game three, four, and seven of the Cubs versus Indians. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And we, that sounds we, like we, well, we lost three, four and we're like, we're out, we're down three to one. But I kept saying, we got a chance. We got a chance. And in game seven, it happened. I'm like, we got to go. And me and four of my buddies went and uh, Cubs got the W. <laughs> there you go. You're uh, well, there you go. You're living the dream, which, uh, which is great. I, um, I'm super grateful for you sharing this story, Casey. And where can people find you? Is there, are you a LinkedIn guy? Do you have a social? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter, just Casey Cavell. And then CaseyCavell.com. Uh, check it out there. I got a newsletter I publish every Friday to help entrepreneurs focus. And uh, we got a podcast too. I love baseball, as you know. So we have the Dugout CEO podcast where you know it's baseball guys, but they're business guys and they're helping people win on the field, off the field, you know, in the boardroom kind of thing. So the podcast is, uh, is rather new, but I think we're 20 episodes in and we've had some former major league all-stars and hall of fame coaches. It's been a ton of fun. And my whole goal is to get entrepreneurs, the resources they need. And all that's at uh, kccavell.com. Awesome. And congrats on the, on the show. I know it's early, early days, but you've got like 85 five-star ratings or something like that. It's incredible yeah. uh, to, to be at that uh, stage of the game in such an early, uh, early part of the episode. So Casey, thank you so much for doing this. We'll put all of uh, Casey's contact information and the resources he mentioned in the show notes at builtthesouth.com. Thanks for doing this. You bet. Thanks, John. And there you have it for today's episode between John and Casey. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then as always, be sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you want to help support Built to Sell Radio, you can either share this episode out with a friend or colleague, or we'd encourage you to head over to Apple Podcasts, where there you'll have the chance to leave a rating and review. Also, a quick reminder, if you want to watch this full interview, you can head over to our YouTube channel and type in at Built to Sell Radio. If you know someone who'd be a great fit to be a guest right here on the show, 
then you can actually nominate them. You can head over to builttosell.com forward slash nominate, where there you'll have the chance to nominate yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the show with John. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including some more information on the Colby psychometric assessment test, be sure to visit our episode page, which you'll be able to find at builttosell.com. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering, and thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and I look forward to talking to you again next week. 